Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I was going to say good morning, I'm Art Going, but Wilson did that. Um, it is really, really good to be back. Uh, I snuck back in a few months ago for a deanery meeting, but didn't get to see most of my friends. Um, when I was driving down Mason Avenue earlier this morning to come to the first service um, and passed the new church, uh, a birthing, uh, it occurred to me that it, this could be the last time I am with you in this space, um, this beautiful space. Uh, but I'm told that the same hands that have crafted much of the beauty in this space are hard at work in anticipation of the new space, and uh, that's, that's a great, glorious, good thing. Uh, I had this vision, though, of, of gathering here sometime in, when, when's it going to be? November, I guess, God willing. Uh, gathering here in this space for a final celebration and then parading up to the new place. Just a thought. Uh, the 1981 movie, uh, Chariots of Fire, which a few of us may have seen and remember, um, tells the story of Eric Liddell a Scottish runner and rugby player who was born in China of missionary parents. He was a member of the British team in the 1924 Olympics and came to mind this week. wonder why. Um, Liddell chose not to run. If you saw the movie, it was very moving. He chose not to run the heats of the 100-meter dash, which was his event. He was, for all intents and purposes, the fastest man on the planet and he opted not to run his race because when he got to the Olympics, he found out that the heats were scheduled on Sunday and he refused to run on the Sabbath. Instead, he ran the anchor of the 400-meter relay. The team won. He went on to a life as a missionary the rest of his life in China. He died in 1945 in a Japanese internment camp. There's a beautiful line in the movie um, there's no reason to believe that Eric Liddell didn't actually utter the line. Some of you will remember it. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Gosh, I would hope that all of us could find a time in life when what we do finds God's pleasure, and we know that to be true. I've been thinking about running a lot lately, which, if you know me, is completely incongruous. <laughs> In my 20s, the summer after my first year of seminary, my roommate Mark, who lived in the same town as I did, Cincinnati, Ohio, challenged me to become a runner. He ran in high school. I played baseball and football. I had to run. I didn't choose to run. Well, I said, I'll try. He said, give me three weeks of your life. He said, give me three weeks and I will turn you into a runner. I guarantee it. He, he had this, this illusion that somehow in, in three weeks he could help me get through that mythical wall and I'd fall in love with running distance. I was skeptical but I agreed to give him three weeks. He was wrong. 
Every night we gathered at the track outside my old high school. Uh, we ran several miles. It was hot, humid, as Cincinnati summers are. Um, and the last evening of the third week, I turned to him and said, see you later, have fun running next week. In my late 30s, my doctor, when I had moved to St. Louis to take up a pastorate, um, I discovered was a marathoner. That made me sweat a little bit. <laughs> but he told me one day, after a strenuous physical exam, that walking would be better for my joints. I kept him as my doc. <laughs> Maybe it's not running so much as the prospect of another season of focused training at the University of North Carolina, they call it rehab, in the wake of a heart attack I suffered two weeks ago that has me thinking about running a little differently. I had a stent put in. Two days after the event, I was home, and here I am today. A little anxious. Had to be prompted this morning as I left the hotel to watch the energy level, bring a little passion. But anyway, um, wasn't altogether a surprise. 2012, I had a triple bypass operation in Dallas. And uh, this, the cardiologist told me, wasn't altogether not to be expected. Um, in one of the bypassed arteries, some plaque broke loose, blood clot formed, I felt pain in my back, and boom, they into the cath lab. As I say, I've been thinking about running. Maybe it's also the Olympics, though I, truth be told, don't really anticipate being glued to the TV as much as I might have been when I was younger. I've been thinking about running the endeavor and why it is that the writer of the Hebrews might have chosen it as the key metaphor for the Christian life. Chapter 12 begins, Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So who do you think they are? Spectators? Kind of seems that way. That's, that's how it sets up. It's a race. That's the metaphor. So people in stands cheering, spectators, that makes sense. Are, are, are they famous saints? That's what I've often read and heard in commentaries and messages on this text. I've even preached it a few times. It's interesting how often I've been asked to preach this text over the years. I've even on occasion imagined some faces in the stands cheering me on as I, as I run. I used to be a Lutheran, some of you know that, and I've, I've imagined Martin Luther banging a beer stein on the railing shouting, Lauf, Artur, Lauf! Run. But, but here's the thing. We know who the writer to the Hebrews had in mind. He's just spent an entire chapter, chapter 11, telling us. Look at the amazing litany in chapter 11. I, I mean that. Look at it today. Read all that we left out, all 40 verses of chapter 11. It's a relentless litany of Old Testament figures, many of them named, the, the biggies, the not-so-biggies, and then lots of them not named. It's an astonishing, astonishing portrayal. It's, it's, it's like going to the National Portrait Gallery off Trafalgar Square in London and, and walking inside and seeing the entire history of a people 
portrayed in portraits. That's, that's all we get. We get portraits, we get little taglines, little hints of who these people are and what they had done. But what joins them all together is this one little mantra, by faith, by faith, by faith Moses, by faith Abraham, by faith Abel, by faith, again and again. I don't know how many times. I didn't bother to count this, this week, but by faith. Faith, which Hebrews tells us is trust in what God has said, what God has promised. Faith, the assurance that the future we anticipate will take place and the present we can't see is nevertheless real. Faith is trust in God's promises. Trust that builds a boat in the desert. Trust that longs for a better country. Trust that is prepared for disgrace. Trust that looks forward to what's promised. It's really tempting. It was tempting to me the last few weeks to zoom in and preach about just one of these. If Wilson had asked me two weeks ago, what are you preaching on? I would have told him Abraham. Just Abraham. By faith, we're told. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And this sentence, don't you love this? He went out not knowing where he was going. Can that be said of us? By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. But I finally decided to resist the temptation and to focus instead on this central metaphor in the letter to the Hebrews, a marathon race. We don't know, we really don't know what the rest of 2021 is going to bring for us, do we? But the course we're going to run has been set by God. The race that is set before us, verse 1 of chapter 12. What we do know, I think, as an Anglican colleague said in London a few weeks ago, that we find ourselves at a pivot point. We, we have an opportunity right now, unlike any other in a generation, an opportunity maybe not seen since the end of the Second World War or the, the end of the First World War even, perhaps. An opportunity to reset and to ask, what kinds of post-COVID Christians and post-COVID churches do we want to be? Surely, we're encouraged not merely to, to think, oh, back to business as usual. This has been too profound a tragic year to waste in that fashion. Of course, our part as was true of all the figures portrayed in chapter 11, our part is to run our course by faith. The challenge is to stay the course. Hebrews is a call to commitment. Nobody wins a marathon by drifting. People win marathons by staying focused, like I know. But I talked to Isaac, and Isaac knows. You, you win a marathon by staying relentlessly focused. The one calling us to run the race is God, and he's fully committed to our joy and our glory. But if God's so committed to our joy and our glory, you wonder, and if he loves us so much, why is our life so hard? The answer from the book of Hebrews is that life is indeed hard. It's a difficult journey. It's a journey from weariness into rest, from alienation into belonging, from withering isolation into the glorious city of God. Ultimate, ultimately, we're all dreaming of home, and the only way we're going to get there is by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says. He is our home. 
And in him, our passage is secure, our resources sufficient. Whatever circumstances we face. So we haven't a clue where the balance of this year or any year is headed. But we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. There's no better place in the scriptures to find the security we yearn for than from the book of Hebrews. So back with me to the cloud of witnesses for a moment. It's clear, isn't it? They're not mere spectators. As much as we make of the impact of a crowd of cheering spectators for a race or an athletic event, commentators on TV rant on about the home field advantage which disappeared if you're a baseball fan, for instance, when baseball players suddenly had to play in front of no one except cutouts. But as much as we make of that so-called home field advantage, and as weird as it will be for athletes in Tokyo to run in nearly empty stadiums, we have to note that in the, the Chapter 11 crowd are not spectators alone. They're all, to a person, runners who've run the race. They're not at all like normal spectators at a race, most of whom have never run so much as a 5K, let alone a marathon. These are not spectators. They're witnesses. They're cheering us on because they want us to know, you can do this. You can run this race. Here's the wider context of Hebrews 11. The people of God had gotten tired. They had begun to list, to waver. They were careless in their spiritual vigilance. They had quenched the Holy Spirit with passionless, dead, dutiful religious exercises. And throughout Hebrews, there are warnings almost at every turn. And now chapter 11 and chapter 12 comes along. The last laps are starting. It's time to see our life as a race to be run with passion and zeal and energy and discipline. Hebrews 11 tells us there are two spheres of uncertainty as we run, an unknown future and an unseen present. And faith, it tells us, specializes in these and even flourishes. Our present happiness depends not on the present, but on the future. God wants us to look away from the present, out into his future promises. He's not asking us to sac sacrifice our happiness. He's connecting our happiness with things not yet seen. We don't have to deserve them. We don't. The people in chapter 11 didn't deserve them. But God does call us to live for them. He has promised us a better country, a heavenly home, lasting pleasures, greater wealth. It's all there in chapter 11. As we run toward that future, we become prophetic here in our own generation. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us of all the people whose stories bear witness that the race can be run. And our passage today in chapter 12 describes the, motiva the motivation we need to keep running. Three things. First, look back to the witnesses. You want to stay in the race? Keep looking back to the witnesses. Some of you know that the, the biblical word is actually martyrs. And as if that weren't already clear, the cost of Christian faith, then just look at the last several verses. I mean, that was, that was kind of painful to listen to. I mean, anybody here relish the prospect of being sawn in two? 
Listen to Bishop Andudu tell stories from the Nuba Mountains sometime about the cost. It almost cost him his life. But all these people have finished the race. You can too. That's the message. There's something better ahead. Remember, none of them received the final prize. Did you catch that? Not one of them received the final prize. They all lived in prospect, in hope. They're waiting for us to finish the race. They're waiting for the coming of the kingdom. All the saints wait with eager longing and excitement for you and me to finish. There's a beautiful collect, uh, a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer uh, that goes like this. Almighty God, you've surrounded us with a great cloud of witnesses. Grant that we, encouraged by the good example of your servants, may persevere in running the race that is set before us until at last we may with them attain to your eternal joy. Look back at the witnesses and be motivated and encouraged. And then go into training. Athletes preparing for a marathon or any major competition for that matter have to adopt a strenuous regime of food and drink and exercise and sleep. Verse 2 says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Lay aside weights that slow us down. What, what, what might those be as you run the race? You know, what's, what's keeping you from running? Is it anxiety about trivial things? Worry about bigger things? Is it ambition to use the gospel as a means of self-advancement? Nancy and I have been living with a, a listening lately with rapt interest to a, a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about a well-known megachurch and a well-known celebrity pastor named Mark Driscoll. It's really worth your listening to. It's scary stuff, but it, it takes us inside and helps us to understand how we got this pernicious movement of celebrity churches and celebrity pastors. Well, that may not be what you need to lay aside. Narcissistic yearning for celebrity. Maybe it's seeking gratification of base appetites. Maybe it's resentments. Most pastors could tell you how, how disastrous it can be when resentment sets in among God's people and tears apart the fabric of a church. What is it that weighs you down and keeps you running with endurance? Uh, and it's not just these weights, but it's the writer says, sins which cling so closely. Uh, the image there, this clinging, is actually, it's a picture of a net. That's what the word involves. I mean, it's, it's almost absurdist to imagine trying to run when you're all tangled up in, in a net. But that's what sin does. And there's a strict warning attached in the very word which is used to describe the race, the word agon, agony. So, you've got the picture, right? We are a people in training. That's what it means, in part, to be the church. We're a people in training. So, three pretty rudimentary questions if you're in training. Um, are you out on the track early? One of the things I've always loved about Church of the Incarnation and, and about uh, Aubrey's uh, relentless zooming in on the spiritual life is the way you all have been taught 
and introduced to spiritual formation, particularly on the importance of the word. You know, reading the word on the mega level, you know, getting, getting sort of into your bones the, the big picture of God's grace and mercy, but then zooming in, being encouraged to meditate daily on scripture, uh, digesting it, savoring it, letting it fuel you, taking delight in it. So when I ask, are you out in the track early, what I'm really asking, how is your prayer, how is your engagement with Scripture? And are you meeting with the team? You know, the picture of the marathon in Hebrews is not of an individual enterprise, but, but of, a, of a team sport. I, I know that leaves the analogy aside a little bit, but Hebrews is really keenly interested that we not neglect to gather as a team as the church. Uh, at the end of chapter 10, right before this litany in chapter 11, we're told, do not neglect the gathering. And then it spells out all the things we would miss if we didn't come together. And then finally, are you obeying the coach? Sounds a little mundane, but it's not as though we haven't been told everything we need to endure. Which takes us to the third thing, keep looking to the finish line. The, the great and climactic encouragement. Looking away to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the epicenter of this entire section of Hebrews. Uh, notice the force of this verb. The text isn't saying looking to Jesus, it says look, looking away to Jesus. You don't notice that in all the translations, but it, it's, it's right there. Uh, it's, it's a preposition embedded in the verb. Looking away to Jesus. In other words, looking away from our present surroundings, our preoccupations, ourselves, and fixing our eyes on something else. We can only focus on one thing at a time. Th that really is true. We can fancy ourselves multitaskers, but we can really only focus on one thing at a time. And if we'll fix our eyes on Jesus, we will go the distance. Every other focus is energy depleting. But Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's why Hebrews 12 is not a pep talk. It's not appealing to our own strength. It's a call to refocus on Christ who began our faith, <laughs> author of our faith, Christopher, and perfecter of our faith. We've all failed. We've all stumbled many times. And we'll keep stumbling. But that doesn't mean we have to quit because we don't run this race on our own. Even our faith comes from beyond ourselves, from Christ. Jesus performed a miracle to get you into the race, and his miraculous faithfulness is enough to sustain you all the way. Let's not focus on our failures. Let's look away to Jesus, who has laid hold of us with the power called faith. The passage goes on, Who for the joy set before him endured a cross, despising the shame. What an insight into Christian motivation that is. What moves us to keep going? Well, what kept Jesus going? The joy set before him. When he was whipped, when the nails were pounded into his hands, when the crown of thorns was driven into his scalp as he suffered subhuman torture for us, he was thinking about something. He stayed focused. 
He kept before his mind's eye the joy set before him, and it made him unstoppable as he ran his race. Did you ever realize Jesus had to live by faith too? His divine nature didn't give him a free ride. He ran his race by looking beyond the pain of the moment into the joy of the future. What did he see out there? He saw us, fully redeemed, with him in eternity. And for him, that was no meager joy. It was so massive, so rich, so happy, he endured even a cross and blew off the disgrace as inconsequential. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of faith and the finisher of faith and the pattern of faith. Run the way Jesus ran. Look to him as you run. You may run like him. Copy his endurance. One of my favorite bloggers wrote recently that word, endurance, which he says is really It's patient endurance or perseverance. One word in Greek, two in English. Patient endurance, he said, the word for the year. That's what will keep us in the race. Perseverance, patient endurance. It's not the result of our determination. It's the result of God's faithfulness. He's the author of faith, the finisher of faith, the pattern of faith. He's the goal of faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We run towards him so that we see more of him, so that we may grow more like him, so that we may come nearer to him. So, in closing, let me just lob out a few simple applications on on how to bring this home into your own race preparation. And these are a little unorthodox, maybe at least in their phrasing. Learn to see with your ears. Learn to see with your ears. Fix your eyes on Jesus. To do that, learn to see with your ears. I ran it by Nancy, and she said, I rather rather prefer learn to hear with your eyes. Well, she's an artist. I think learn to see with your ears is, is apt here because faith is knowing what God says trusting his word because of who he is and living in the light of it. Faith, as we see in the life of Jesus, he said it himself, is living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The key to the life of faith is to be so deeply fed and nourished by the word of God that it energizes us to live by faith. Faith comes by hearing. Now, you can hear with your eyes, but I want to encourage you to see with your ears to listen to the word. However that listening happens for you, learn to see with your ears. Secondly, um, an image from the, the gospel. Some of you may have wondered why that Mark 14 gospel about the woman anointed Jesus right before the crucifixion, what, how does that connect at all with this running a marathon race? Well, Here's the second application. I want to encourage you to think about what it means for you to break the alabaster flask. What is it that you hold so precious? What is so dear to you that you can't imagine possibly letting go or turn it around? What might you need to consider sacrificing and relinquishing 
in order to fix your gaze on Jesus. What's your alabaster flask? You got to know it was precious. They, the critics of that woman were not wrong. That was a lot of, lot of cash on the ground. But she poured it all over Jesus so that she could keep her eyes fixed on him in adoration. Last image from Tom Wright. When we look at the true God and wait on him, this is from the Old Testament reading today, we find that when there is mounting up to be done, we can do it with eagle's wings. When there's running to be done, we can do it without fainting. The Christian life is a marathon. It's worth running, and it can be run. Because Jesus himself is all we need to go the distance, which so many others have already proven. So let's throw off everything that slows us down. Let's run. Let's run to win. Let's run together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.